You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, praise the Lord. Well, let's uh, let's open in prayer and we'll get started. Amen. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. Father, we praise you because you are good and your mercy endures forever. Father, we want you to know we just are so grateful for you and all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together in your name. Jesus promised us that when we would do that, that he would be right here in our midst. And so, Father, I thank you no matter where we are physically, the Holy Spirit is right there. Your anointing is right there. Your presence is right there. And so, Father, we release our faith right now and believe to be taught, to be instructed by him, the Holy Spirit, the teacher, and expect to receive revelation, knowledge, and insight tonight. And Father, we thank you for it. Thank you for the covenant that we have with you. And thank you for showing us how deep and how wonderful and how awesome that covenant is. And we praise you for it. And we love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, if you guys want to turn to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to just give you, again, remind you what our foundation scripture is. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, it says, But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. And so as we've been talking, the covenant, the old covenant was not bad. It was good, but the new covenant is better. And uh, simply because of all the things that it opens up in our relationship with God that, of course, we're able to receive and walk in through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do tonight, we're going to go back and we're going to revisit Abraham We're going to look at some things about the covenant uh, that God and Abraham entered into. I want to expound on that a little bit more. And then uh, the main subject of tonight is going to be to answer the question, what was it that Abraham believed that God was able to account it towards him as righteousness? What was it that he believed? So we'll get to that in just a moment. So 500 years after the flood, the people of the earth, of course, have, you know, never really got right. They continued, you know, to be idol worshipers and strayed away from God. And Abraham's family, or Abram as he was known at this time, lived actually in what is modern day Iraq. They lived in the land of Ur, and it was between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers there in Babylon. And it was, you know, very culturally sophisticated community, but very, very much idolatrous. His family, uh, you know, was pagan. His his father was a pagan, and they worshipped other idols and knew very, very little, if anything, about God whatsoever. And so <clears throat> God shows up in Abram's life, taps him on the shoulder one day, and invites him 
to, to be a part of this covenant relationship with him. And uh, God instructed him and told him to, you know, leave that household that he came from, all of his pagan idols and so forth, and that God wanted to take him to a place that he would show them, or show him rather. And then once Abram got there, God promised him that he would bless him and make out of him a great nation, and uh, that out of Abram's seed, all nations of the world would be blessed. So let's look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. And this is where their relationship started. And it says in verse one, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram, in verse 4, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. And the people whom they had acquired in Haran, they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, and as far as the terebinth tree and Moray and the Canaanites were there in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And Abram there built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. So you see this relationship that begins between God and Abram. And, you know, a lot of times, again, I, I encourage you to pay attention to the details. And uh, it's real easy, that the, the phrase that when God told him, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, we, we tend to read that very quickly. And of course, in our modern culture, uh, it's, a, it's a normal thing for uh, us to move out of our father's house, you know, and our parents and away from our parents. However, in this day and in this culture, that was not normal. You may not have physically lived in the same literal uh, four walls, but you stayed very close to your family. You stayed very close to your, your predecessors, your ancestors, and, and uh, built on that family lineage there. And so this was, I would imagine, not an easy thing for Abram to do. And especially uh, what it also meant was leave everything that you had depended on, because Abram's life and his whole uh, structure of his life, if you will, was built on the provision that came from his father's household, and all of that was part of it. And so God asked him to leave all of that behind and... Uh, you know, as God often does, he did not even tell Abram really where he wanted him to go. He said, go, and then I'll show you where you're going. And, uh, you know, you'll find that as you walk with the Lord, that a lot of times he'll lead you in that way. He'll tell you, take off, take some steps, and then I'll show you what's next and what to do. And really what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to see if you'll believe him and step out and in faith and trust him to know that he will give you the next steps. And of course, that's exactly what happened here. And so Abram ends up in Canaan and uh, 
continues on with his relationship with the Lord. But go over with me to chapter 15, Genesis 15, and verses 5 and 6. And uh, so we're going to come back to this in just a moment, but I want to show you a phrase in here that is the subject of tonight. In verse 5, he says, Then he brought him outside. God brought Abram outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, uh, for the sake of time, you don't necessarily have to turn to these, but just make a note of these references. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul quoted this verse, and he said, and what does the scripture say? And it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then Paul wrote again in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6, and it says this in verse 6, just as Abram, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then lastly, the book of James, James said this in verse 23 of chapter 2, he said, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, we talked about that in respect to the covenant relationship, but what we want to talk about tonight is what was it about that covenant relationship with God that Abraham believed, and God was able to, uh, and the, the, the word accounted there is an accounting term. In other words, what God was able to do because of what Abraham believed he was able to put righteousness over in the column that Abraham was in where, you know, of course, this is before Christ. This is before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So righteousness is not something in the Old Testament that was given out freely. So what was it that Abraham believed that God was able to account it to him for righteousness? Because here's why we need to know this. Because if, if we too can learn what Abraham believed, it can be counted to us as righteousness if we choose to believe it. Uh, we can become acceptable to God just like Abraham became acceptable to God. We can be reconciled with our creator just like Abraham was reconciled with his creator. And then we can have peace with God just like Abraham was able to walk in peace with God. And so Again, God brings Abram to the land of Canaan. God approaches him in a way that Abram can understand. And we touched on this earlier in, in the previous lessons, but then he goes on to establish a blood covenant with Abraham. And it's, it's based on the same principles and the same covenant that he established with Adam and Eve. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we talked about how God, uh, caused uh, animals to die and bleed so that he could clothe Adam and Eve in the skins of those particular animals. And then we see where there was a covenant that God made with Noah. After the flood receded, God entered into a covenant relationship with Noah, and Noah offered a sacrifice to the Lord after he got out of the boat. And the Bible says it became a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of the Lord. And so uh, these are all covenant relationships that uh, you know, these people entered into, but God shows up and goes 
to a whole nother level in this covenant relationship that we see with Abram. So there in chapter 15 of Genesis, look at verse 1, Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Now, what was it God was declaring? You remember one of the things that was part of the covenant ritual or rite, if you will, was you made a declaration. You declared something over each other. And so what God is saying here in this verse, he's telling Abram, I am your shield and, the, and your exceeding great reward. With this statement, God is taking the initiative. And what he's doing with this statement is basically, as we said last week, he was taking off his robe and belt and giving that to Abram. You remember robe, the robe represented who you were. It represented your status. And then the belt, when they took off the belt, uh, that was their ability to fight and defend and so forth and so on. So what God is saying, he says, listen, Abram, I am going to be your protector. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be re your reward. And, uh, you know, obviously God does not have a physical robe to give him. So he simply offers him himself. God gave Abram himself. Okay. And so God is saying in this, Abram, here I am. Here is myself. I offer you me. I am your reward. Man, think about that. You know, if God was to walk into your room where you're sitting right now and say, hey, don't worry about anything else. I'll be your reward. Because, you know, everything that we could possibly need, want, or desire is contained in the Lord. And so, you know, if God steps in and says, hey, I'm your reward, everything that comes with that comes with God. And he says, I offer you me. I am your reward. I am holy. I give you my holiness. I am righteous. I give you my righteousness. I give you my life. I'm pledging to lay it down on your behalf if you will accept this covenant and enter into it with me. God then says, I'm your shield. He's Notice he didn't say, I'm giving you a shield. He said, I am your shield. I will be your shield. I will protect you. I'll fight your battles for you. I will be your strength. If anyone attacks you, they're really attacking me. And then God goes on to say, out of your seed shall come a blessing to the whole world. But I want you to know that I'm not making this covenant with you because you deserve it or you earn it because obviously you do not. I'm taking the initiative. God said, I am taking the initiative with this covenant because I love you and for no other reason. And so you remember, I made a comment to you last week how the, the lesser is blessed of the greater in a covenant relationship. And listen, God benefited nothing by being in a relationship with Abram in the sense of Abram had so much to offer. No, God initiated this covenant simply because he loved Abram and wanted to be in a relationship with him. And then as we'll see in just a few minutes, how this will open the door for the fulfillment of God's entire plan of redemption. And so later on, Abram responds in verse eight, and he says, Lord God, how shall I know 
that I will inherit it. God had promised him the land, and he said, how do I know that I'm going to inherit it? And so God proceeds to enter into this covenant. We touched on this, but I'm going to read through it again. Uh, God has him go through the entire procedure of cutting the covenant with the animals. You remember we talked about how Abram got uh, the animals, he split them in half, he put the two halves separate from one another, and uh, all of the animals that he chose and that he used and was instructed to use were considered clean by the Lord. So just because of the instruction that God gives him, Abram knows that this is going to be a covenant, and he knows the seriousness of this covenant and that it can't be broken. So look at verse 9 in chapter 15. He says to Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought to all these to God and cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And that word horror is not like a horror movie. It's just, it's talking about how heavy it was. In verse 13, then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven uh, and a, or a column of fire uh, and a burning torch, or, or let me back up, a pillar of smoke and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. Now, as we talked about this last week, um, did this ever cross anybody's mind as to why it seemed like Abram was left out of this? You remember we talked about how it was God and Jesus that actually were walking in between the pieces here. And Abram was just over there, just kind of witnessing all of this and watching it and and, uh, you know, for the longest time, when I would read this years ago, it would, I, I couldn't understand how could this be part of a covenant relationship uh, that Abram was involved in because he had nothing to do with it, really. He was not involved with it at all. It was, it was God and Jesus that were actually doing all of the participation. Well, let me answer that question. The problem with God entering into a covenant relationship with Abram was this. How can the creator enter into a covenant relationship with the creation? How can weak, sinful man enter into a covenant with the holy, mighty, all-powerful God? What does Abram possibly have to offer God? And of course, the answer to that is nothing. If every human being could offer all of their possessions to God, it still would never merit a covenant relationship with God. The creator is beyond reach of the creation's ability to reach out to him in their, in their own capacity. So 
there is just no common ground for Abram to be able to approach God in this way. All right. So why did God have to do it this way? Well, here's the simple reason because there was no one else qualified to be involved in this covenant. God chose to swear by himself in this covenant. Now, here's what you also need to understand, and this is, again, laying the groundwork for what is to come. God chose to swear by himself, and the the only way that this covenant relationship could be established is if some member of the Godhead was going to be a substitute for Abram. Okay, and so that again, that opens the door for the Lord Jesus to get involved. Hebrews chapter six, if you want to just make a note of this, Hebrews uh, chapter six, verses 13 and 14 say this, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. So I want you to think about this for just a second. God is making all of these declarations. And you remember one of the declarations was, is out of you shall come a great nation, and through you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, guess what? There was somebody else that God was declaring that to as well. And it was Abram's substitute in this covenant. God was declaring to the Lord Jesus Christ that in you shall all families of the earth be blessed, and I'm going to raise a great people up out of you, okay? So God caused this deep sleep to fall on Abram, and there was a great darkness, and Abram witnessed everything that was taking place, and uh, he saw uh, the, the two parties passing between the halves of the animals, and Someone else was saying, I am dying to myself. I'm giving up my rights to my own life. I'm beginning a new walk with my covenant partner. Not my will, God, but yours be done. And this was when the Lord Jesus swore in this covenant relationship to pay the price to ultimately redeem mankind to pay the price to be the sacrifice for humanity. Now, Abram saw this bright, brilliant glow. He saw the pillar of smoke, and then he saw the only way, you know, that the writers knew how to describe it was like it looked like a burning furnace, but it was this bright, white-hot heat light that was passing in between the pieces. So who was it? that Abram saw. Well, put, keep your marker there back in Genesis, but go with me over to Matthew 17. And let's look at Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. Now, this is a glimpse uh, into what we call the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up on top of the mountain and uh, he led them up there. And so it says in verse one, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. In verse two, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. 
And then, of course, you know, later on, Moses and Elijah appeared to him and they conversed with him. I personally believe uh, their conversation was about what Jesus was getting ready to accomplish and then also what was to come, uh, you know, as far as the overall arching uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so what I want you to see, though, is that when Jesus allowed himself to be seen in his full-on glory, the only way that Matthew knew how to describe it based on the testimony of Peter, James, and John is that his face shone like the sun. It was that bright. Go over with me to Revelation chapter 1, please. The book of Revelation chapter 1, and look at verses 13 and 15. i tell you, we'll just back up to verse 12. The apostle John is beginning to experience his uh, revelation from the Lord, and Jesus appears to him, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And verse 12, he says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. So again, John, again, think about this for just a moment. This is the same apostle John that saw him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he had caught a glimpse of the glorified Jesus at that moment. But I want you to think about something. John had traveled with Jesus for three and a half years in his ministry. He, he loved Jesus. They had spent a lot of intimate time together. And so when the Lord appears to him, notice what it says in verse 13. In the, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, the only way that, that John knew how to express it was, it looks like what I kind of remember Jesus looking like, but he's different. And, uh, you know, so what John saw was the glorified version of the Lord Jesus, not the earthly ministry version. And uh, so it was a, uh, you know, a wonderful thing for him to be able to see. And then Revelation chapter 21, go towards the end of the book. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23, and this is, this is what's phenomenal. And we're going to see all this one day when we all get to heaven. Uh, John writes, and he, he's talking about the literal place of heaven, and he said, I saw no temple in it, verse 22, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. You know, I've heard people testify about that have died and gone to heaven and talked about how marvelous the light is there and that there are no shadows. You know, we don't know what it's like not to have shadows, but light emanates all around. Shadows are caused because of light only coming from one direction. In heaven, light comes from everywhere because it, it's enlightened by the Lord Jesus himself. So there is, there are no shadows. There is no darkness at all. And so my whole point in this is this is what Abram caught a glimpse of. Passing between those pieces was a glorified 
pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus cutting or, or participating in this covenant relationship with God. So we have the eternal Son of God in his pre-existing glory. He stood in for Abram. He was the substitute for Abram in this whole covenant situation. And why? Because he was the only one that was qualified to stand in for Abram. And here's what's cool. All of Abram's unborn seed were included in that covenant because they were physically on the inside of Abram. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Jesus, remember this, Jesus was to be the sacrifice. He himself would at some time in the future become the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. All right. Now, Let's talk about what happened in this covenant and what Abram's involvement was in the covenant from this point on, all right? So what we have later on in Genesis chapter 17 is where God instructs Abram to seal the covenant so that, that there would be a scar. You remember we talked about one of the things that, of course, the shedding of blood was involved. And so what you endeavored to do wherever the shedding of blood took place is that there was to be a scar, to be a, an everlasting reminder of this covenant. So God instructs Abram to institute this thing called circumcision, which leaves a physical mark on the body. And that was the, the representation of this covenant. Abram would wear in his flesh the evidence that he had entered into a blood covenant with God through Christ. Now, that's a key to remember. Abram's covenant with God was through Christ, okay? So all of Abram's descendants would bear this scar so that the reminder or testimony would be passed down from generation to generation. And then we mentioned this last week. We talked about in the, the covenant relationship, there's the exchanging or changing of the names, and we talked about how God in Genesis 17 told Abram, he said, your name is no longer going to be Abram, but I'm going to make it Abraham. And God took the fourth letter of his name, which is uh, in our language is H. In Hebrew, it's Ha, okay? Uh, kind of like you're clearing your throat. And uh, he took that out of his name, and he put that in the very middle of Abraham's name or Abram's name. And so his name then became Abraham. Likewise, God also changed Sarah's name. Sarah used to be called Sarai. Her last, the last letter in her name it ended in I, but God changed her name and put his letter on the end of her name, and she became Sarah. And so God took on Abraham's name because from that point on, listen, he was known as the God of Abraham. So think about this, throughout ages, I mean, even to this day, he is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So God took on Abraham's name, Abraham or Abram took on God's name in his name. Now, Abram at this point has no son. Now, he's got a promise, but he doesn't physically have a son. 
So according to this promise, Abraham was to have a son. And if this is going to happen, listen to me carefully, it was definitely going to have to be a supernatural thing. Uh, you remember at this point, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. And as I pointed out to you last week, Sarah had was never able to have children. She was barren all of her life. And so this was a, uh, it was going to take an absolute miracle for this birth to take place. And so Abraham has never had a covenant partner with it, like, like God with so many promises. But the, the one thing he does know is that God cannot break the covenant. This gives Abraham complete confidence and assurance in his partner and his willingness and ability to bring the promise to pass. And I just want to remind each of us tonight, we have a covenant partner, you know, going way into the future, but we have a covenant partner through the Lord Jesus who absolutely will not break the covenant. So if the promise, if a promise is included in that covenant relationship, it is impossible for God to break that promise. So think about all the promises that God has made to us in his word that we benefit from as his covenant children and partners. And so it is impossible for God not to fulfill those promises. Okay. So God is capable, as we all know, of delivering the promise and Abraham and Sarah have a son. So go back with me to Genesis chapter 21, please. Genesis 21. All right, look at verse 5. Genesis 21 and verse 5. In verse 2, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, and at the set time of which God had spoken to him, and Abram, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Verse four, Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God told him to. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son, Isaac, was born to him. And uh, so now we have Abraham is, is starting to experience the fulfillment of the promise. Now, let's review for just a second. Abraham's 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. God has performed this miracle through both of them or in both of them so that Isaac was conceived and Isaac was born. And uh, so everything is looking good. Every, it looks as though that, um, you know, God is fulfilling his promise and, and things are moving along in this covenant relationship. Well, then something happens in chapter 22. So look at verse one of chapter 22. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested or he proved Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. <laughs> what else would you say when God calls your name? Okay. Verse two. Now listen to this. Then God said, take now your son, pay attention to the details, your only son, Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place where God had told him. So think about this, this covenant that God made with Abraham, Jesus was the substitute for Abraham. And you remember while all this was going on, basically Abraham, God had caused him to fall asleep. In other words, he didn't do anything to be a part of this covenant. He wasn't physically involved. Did Abraham really believe in the covenant? Did he really believe in this covenant? This is what God is wanting to know. Or was it just mental assent or some type of religious thing that Abraham went along with? And so remember this, when the covenant is cut, each party completely surrenders himself in loving trust to his covenant partner. That's key right there. When you're in a covenant relationship with someone, you surrender yourself in loving trust to that partner. He must be willing to give his total life, his being, and his heart to the one that he is in covenant with. The covenant is a total surrender of yourself to the one that you are in covenant with. So what God is wanting to find out is, does Abraham really believe in this covenant? Okay. So the only way to pr totally prove what is in Abraham's heart is to find out by asking him to do this, to give up that which is most dear to him. Now, I want you to think about this. Uh, everything that Abraham and Sarah went through for 25 years to come to this moment right here and in the natural, you know, it's not like if anything happened to Isaac, they can just back up and punt, you know, we're, Hey, we're young enough. We can have more kids. No, this was a supernatural miracle. And so if something happens to Isaac, then either God is going to have to move supernaturally again, or their, their childbearing days or raising days are over. Okay. So, but again, what I want you to understand is in the covenant relationship, everything I have belongs to my covenant partner. Everything he has belongs to me. If there is something that I ask of my covenant partner, he has a right to ask of the same thing of me because everything I have belongs to him and everything he has belongs to me. All right. Mm -hmm. So God was wanting to know, would he be willing to give all of this up for God? Okay. So again, he tells him, uh, take your son now, your only son, Isaac, in verse two, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. All right. So again, I, I want to drive home the seriousness of this, especially to a, a Middle Eastern person. You know, um, again, with our Western mindset, we have a tendency to gloss over some of these things. But for a Middle Eastern man to give up and sacrifice his son 
was a huge badge of shame. In other words, for you not to have someone who continues your lineage, who carries on your name as your, your son, that is a huge embarrassment to a Middle Eastern man. This is, this is something that was absolutely huge. So if, if God had asked for Abraham's life, a worn out, tired old man of a hundred years old, it wouldn't have been a true test of Abraham's faithfulness. But for Abraham to offer his only son and once again become childless at a hundred years old, this is the ultimate sacrifice. Okay. So to die without a son was a terrible thing in life. Your whole life would be considered a failure. So in offering his son, Abraham would prove in the most supreme way that he loved God and was willing to be faithful to his partner and faithful to the covenant. Okay, so Abraham arises early the next morning. And uh, so it says in, uh, look at what, what it says in verse four. Let me read verse three again. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of, of which God had told him. Notice this, verse four, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Underline in your Bible that phrase, uh, then on the third day. Okay. And Abraham said to his men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And look at this. And we will come back to you. Listen to what he said, man. He said, listen, I may be going to offer my son, but we are coming back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, now this is legitimate, okay, this is an honest question, uh, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, Isaac's smart, he can figure out what's going on here. And Abraham said, my son, listen, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The old King James says this, God will provide himself the burnt offering, the lamb for the burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. Okay. So let me, let me give you a little bit of details to fill in some blanks here. Abraham rises early in the morning to begin his three-day journey towards a mountain called Salem. This is where Moriah was located. This place called Salem would later be called Jerusalem. We know it as Jerusalem. Abraham saddled a donkey and took Isaac and two servants with them for the three-day journey to the mountaintop. In Abraham's mind, Isaac is as good as sacrificed. This journey, as we read, is in uh, chapter 22. Now, here's what I want to bring a, a little bit of additional information. Now, this is something that 
Mr. Richard Booker, who we're using this book, you remember the miracle of the scarlet thread. He says in his book, and I tend to agree with him, he says this, and I quote, although I cannot prove it in the scripture, I believe that at this time, Isaac is a young man in his 30s. Now, we've always thought he was a boy, just a little boy, okay? And I'll explain why. The Jewish age of maturity is 30. Isaac did not marry until he was 40 and had no children until he was 60. So, you know, this is talking about Isaac's life. So even at 33, he would have been considered a young man. So Isaac had three years of manhood before he was to be offered as a sacrifice. Okay. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. All right. So again, we, uh, we talk about how they went to the mountain. All right. So what's interesting is, and, and I need to pick up my pace a little bit, but what's interesting is Mount Moriah was a place located near Jerusalem. Many Hebrew scholars believe that Mount Moriah was located just outside of what was the modern, at that time, walls of Jerusalem. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does anybody remember where Jesus was sacrificed? Mount Olives. It was, well, it was Mount Calvary, which was located just outside the city of Jerusalem. Does anybody remember how old Jesus was when he was crucified? 33, 33 and a half. Yep. Okay. So let's, uh, let's recap for just a moment. So God told Isaac, he said, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. All right. You remember what I said about a covenant relationship in a covenant relationship. If I approach you and I say, I need, let's say you possess something that was of extreme value to you. I mean, it was so important to you. It meant everything to you. But in that covenant relationship, I come to you and I say, I need that. Well, under that relationship, you're obligated to give me whatever that is. But here's the other part. You then could require the same thing of me. Okay. Now I want to go back and I want to highlight a phrase that we read in Genesis 22 in verse two, God said this, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. Does anybody know what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only, His only begotten son. Now, here's what's happening, y'all, behind the scenes. Because God required this of Abraham. And remember, Abraham represents the future of humanity because out of him, was this nation going to come forth? Out of him was this seed going to come forth that was going to bless the entire world? And so here, Abraham's covenant partner taps him on the shoulder and says, I need you to go to this mountain, 
a specific place, and I need you to offer up your only son, Isaac. Well, guess what? Abraham now, because of that relationship, could require God to do the same thing. Okay. Now, of course, we know Jesus shows up, you know, a couple thousand years after Abraham had this interaction. But here's what I, re I reminded you of a while ago. God never forgets his covenant promises. And when that was made, when that covenant deal was made with Abraham, God never forgot it. He never let it go. And he knew that it was legally obligating him in some time in the future at the right time, at the appointed time, that he was going to have to offer up his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same mountain that Isaac was to be offered. Now, we all know, and you can read through in the story, that, that when Isaac, or excuse me, Abraham raised the knife and was getting ready to slit Isaac's throat for the sacrifice, the angel stopped him. Now, here's why the angel stopped him. If you'll remember, the angel says to Abraham, God now knows, and, and I'm going to paraphrase, God now, now knows what you really believe and what's in your heart, okay? And so he was, as far as God was concerned, it was good as done. So Abraham didn't literally have to fulfill the sacrifice of his only son, but legally it was now required that God would have to do the same thing. Okay. Now I want to begin to wrap this up and I want to give you five things that Abraham believed in this. Okay. And these are very important. Number one, Abraham had to believe God for a supernatural birth, a miraculous birth. He believed that God would supernaturally bring Isaac into the earth. Okay. Number two, he believed God enough that he was willing to offer his only son as a sacrifice and literally did up until the very moment that he was getting ready to kill him. Okay. So he was, he believed in that covenant that strongly. Number three, now I want you to remember, look at this. It says, and so on the third day, Abraham saw the place where Isaac was to be sacrificed. What do you think was going on in Abraham's heart the whole time? He is believing this whole three days that I don't care what God has to do because when I cut my son's throat, I've drained the blood from his body and I burn his body to a crisp. God will raise him up because it is required because out of this boy is coming a nation. Mm -hmm. So for three days, Abraham believed that for three days, Abraham had to hang on to that till he got to the place. Well, let me ask you a question. When was Jesus raised from the dead on the third day? Okay. So Abraham believed for three days that his son was as good as dead, and he was. Here's the fourth thing that Abraham believed. He believed God would provide a substitutionary sacrifice on that very mountain, and he did. You know the story? When he was getting ready to raise the knife, the, the angel stopped him, 
And after they had that conversation, Abraham turned and there was a ram caught in the thicket that became the substitute that he was able to literally sacrifice and offer up to the Lord instead of Isaac. And so Abraham believed that somehow God was going to provide a substitutionary sacrifice. And here's the last thing he believed. He believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Notice what he said again. He told his servants, he said, the boy and I are going to that mountain and we are going to worship. And it was obvious what he was getting ready to do. He had the wood, he had the fire, and he had the knife. And he told those servants, he said, we're going to worship, but we are coming back to you. I don't know how God's going to do it, but God is going, I don't care if he's a pile of ashes, God is going to raise my son back up. Okay. So he goes through and follows through with all of this. And so because Abraham believed these things in his heart, God was willing to give him his own robe of righteousness. Because of Abraham's faith, God was his shield and his protection. The righteousness of God was imputed to Abraham because he believed these things. Now, I want to ask you a question. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Later on in that chapter, and it says uh, in verse 21, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. In other words, there was something that transpired so that God could legally impute an account to us for righteousness. In other words, it made us right in his eyes. Let me tell you what that was. Number one, the first thing you have to believe to be uh, in, accounted as righteous is you've got to believe in a supernatural birth, the supernatural birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to believe that he was born of a virgin, that it was a supernatural miracle that Jesus even came into the earth. Number two, you and I have to believe that God provided his only son as a sacrifice for us. He was a substitute for us. Number three, you have to believe that he was dead, that Jesus died. But on the third day, or that he died and was actually buried. But then number four, we have to believe that on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And now he is Lord of all. It's exactly the same thing that Abraham had to believe. You and I are required to believe. And if we will believe that, that's what gets us born again. And that's what allows God to be able to say in our account, they are righteous. They are right. They are holy because of those things that they believe. Amen. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Yes, it is. That's what that blood covenant is all about, folks. And so we're going we're gonna to keep diving into this. Uh, but, you know, let me toss out a little another, another nugget to you. You got time for one more nugget? Yes. yes. Okay. Have you ever thought about this question? If God knew that Adam was going to sin, why did he even create him and put him in the garden? If he knew, and God did, because God knows everything. 
Why did, why did he go through that whole exercise of creating the garden, creating man, creating the animals and all of that, putting an Adam and Eve in the garden, knowing that he was going to sin? Why did he do that? Anybody have a guess? Well, let me ask you a question. Let's pretend like you own a construction company, okay? You are the owner, the, the top dog, the head honcho. And so you have a construction site that you know is potentially very dangerous. But you send one of your workers into that construction site knowing it's potentially dangerous. And what happens is one day that worker on that construction site ends up getting killed. Who is liable for the death of that construction worker? Construction owner. The owner of the construction company because you willingly sent someone or put someone in an environment that you knew was potentially dangerous and could cost them their life. Well, guess what? What then is required of that construction owner? accountability. Okay. What God did in his wisdom in knowing that Adam was going to sin, and this is just mind boggling to me, but God in his infinite wisdom, knowing that Adam was going to sin, went ahead and put Adam in that environment. And when Adam sinned, God was now legally liable to remedy the situation and God made plans to remedy it and pay for it once and for all. Good stuff. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Mm -hmm. Okay. It, uh, God, uh, God's just awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm beyond words of being able to describe it, but and then all of that, of course, laid the groundwork for what we're talking about. And, you know, the, the cool thing about all of this is you begin to see the infinite wisdom of God woven throughout all of this. And, and listen, here's the one thing I never want us to forget in all of this. He did this. He did none of it to benefit himself. He did all of it to benefit us because he loves us. Thank you, Jesus. And he wanted us. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.